Hello everyone and welcome to American Civil War and UK History channel on YouTube and we're also on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and most of the videos will be available as podcasts from wherever you get your podcasts from. So joining me today is Emergency Wars Chief Historian, author and currently Director of Wisconsin Veterans Museum in Madison, Wisconsin, Christopher Kolakowski. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me, Darren. Good to see you. And you. Um, so um, we are going to discuss um, the Battle of Perryville or Chaplin Hill, as it's also known as, I believe. Is mm -hmm. that correct? Yes. Yes. So Kentucky. Now, Kentucky is important. I'll just get up my slideshow. And uh, anyone that's used to the show will know that, you know, I like to have stuff to go along at the same time. But I just think it's important. Right. So, um, OK, so. The battle was fought on the 8th of October of 1862. Chris has written a book on this topic. And if anyone knows about it, it's going to be Chris. No pressure. <laughs> so um, please explain Kentucky and where its loyalties lie at the outbreak of war in 1861, please, Chris. Well, Kentucky actually was sort of caught between the two storms, if you will. It actually, Kentucky, for the first few months after the firing on Fort Sumter in April of 1861, was actually neutral. It wasn't until September of 1861 when Confederate incursions from the South, followed by, answered by Union incursions from the North, forced Kentucky to join one side or the other. The official stance had been neutrality. Um, Kentucky will be extremely divided during the war. It will have two governments, one for the loyal to the Union, one loyal to the Confederacy, it will have a star on each flag. 100,000 male Kentuckians will serve in the United States Armed Forces and 40,000 will serve for the Confederacy during the war. So if you really wanna look at a state where it's brother against brother, if it's families against families or where towns are divided, if you wanna find a state that that is true probably more than anywhere else, it's the Commonwealth of Kentucky during the Civil War. Yeah, and and there, I've 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 heard plenty of stories that myself of uh, um, I heard of there's a I think there's somebody I can't remember I've read something or listened to something recently where saying about that you know about a father had two sons in both armies. That's probably uh, John J. Crittenden, who was the senior senator in the United States Congress from Kentucky. He remained loyal to the Union. He had two sons, George and Thomas. And both of them become major generals in the army, George in the Confederate army, Thomas in the Union army. So it, it, for the Crittenden family, it most definitely was brother against brother. And of course, there were many other families as well. Uh, the Crittenden's probably being the most famous that was kind of divided by the war. Yeah. So <laughs> just explain why Kentucky is so important to both Confederate and federal governments at the beginning of the war. Um, I've just got a little quote that Lincoln said. So Lincoln said in 1861, um, uh, he wrote a private letter. I think if I lose Kentucky is to nearly lose the whole game. And I think he's absolutely right. Whenever I give pres formal presentations about the Perryville campaign, I always start with that quote. And actually the answer to that is geography. And the map that you have here on the, on the left is actually good illustration of it. If you look at this, the border states there, the, the ones in red, you'll notice in the center there is Kentucky. And Kentucky is in a sense, thank you for the cursor there. Um, Kentucky is a central link, even today, 
is a central link in moving north-south from Tennessee, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, up toward Illinois, Chicago, the Great Lakes, Detroit, Cincinnati, places like that. So if you're the Union and you need to invade the South, you have to go through Kentucky. Kentucky is going to be an essential operating base, as it was. Louisville, Kentucky on the Ohio River was an essential operating base uh, for the Union for most of the war. The other thing about Kentucky's geography, this is something else that needs to be mentioned, is when you look at the northern border of the Confederacy in that part of the world, it's the Kentucky-Tennessee border, which is uh, basically an indefensible line in the dirt. But if the Confederates can turn Kentucky from a Union state into a Confederate state and seize control of the state, the northern border of the Confederacy now becomes the Ohio River, which if for those of you who are in the UK, think of the Thames east, in this, east, of, east of London or the width of the Solent on the south coast between the Isle of Wight and Portsmouth. Um, it's a formidable body of water and even today is a major military obstacle. So for geographic reasons, Kentucky is desirable for both sides. It's also one of the best sources of good quality horse flesh in all of North America, which is essential supplies to both armies. And of course, as I mentioned already, there's a lot of men that serve in the Civil War from the Commonwealth of Kentucky. And so the idea of having those resources, in addition to the geography, puts Kentucky in the crosshairs for the North and the South. Okay, so the invasion of Kentucky itself, um, sorry, yeah, I, was just, I forgot that picture. That was the two governments, I was supposed to bring that up. Anyway, um, so the invasion of Kentucky itself. So um, how do we actually get to Perryville? Because it's quite a long road, isn't it? It's not, it's not quick. That's a great way to put it. Um, this map actually gives a pretty good illustration of it. The first thing I'd point out is that really, even though Perryville, as you point out, is October 8th of 1862, the true story of the campaign that leads up to the, to the battle that ultimately climaxes in the Battle of Perryville starts really in August, about 10 weeks before. Um, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, which is in the southeastern corner there of Tennessee, uh, the two Confederate commanders, Edmund Kirby Smith and Braxton Bragg, meet to discuss what they want to do. The Confederates, by, uh, by this point, have lost the Battle of Shiloh. They've lost Fort Donelson. They've lost two-thirds of Tennessee. And the Union is advancing into northern Mississippi, Alabama. They're beginning to threaten Vicksburg. There's a blue tide, if you will, that is, is rolling through Tennessee into northern Mississippi and Alabama. You can get a sense of that from some of the blue arrows here on the map. They're looking for a place to go. And for the reasons that we've already discussed, they decide to go into Kentucky. And so you can see Kirby Smith leaves Knoxville on the 14th of August, moves north, occupies Lexington, occupies Frankfurt, which, by the way, was the only capital of a loyal state to be captured by the Confederacy in the war. And then Bragg moves north as well, threatens Louisville, which is the main Confederate or the main Union supply base for the entire Western theater, and forces the uh, Federal Army under Don Carlos Buell to basically retreat 300 miles without firing a shot. And so you've got this maneuvering going on in Kentucky that uh, climaxes with Buell and Louisville 
in late September, right after the Battle of Antietam, in the week or so after the Battle of Antietam in Maryland, the Confederates control two third, the eastern two thirds of Kentucky. They're about to inaugurate a Confederate government in Frankfurt. And the situation is very bad for the North. Then on October 1st, Buell leaves Louisville. Um, and as you can see, the way the, the three arrows, or the four arrows move southeast from Louisville and converge on Perryville on October 8th, both sides come together for what turns out to be the climactic battle at Perryville. And once Bragg retreats from Perryville, it's a retreat that will not end until the Confederates are back in Tennessee. And this, was, this, this ends the last great attempt for the Confederacy to turn Kentucky from a blue state to a gray state. Perryville has been known as the high watermark of the Confederacy in the West because of this, which I agree with. And it's a battle that really had a huge impact on the war because of the Lincoln quote that you've already talked about as well. Mm -hmm. um, so you've mentioned uh, the two commanders, but I want to uh, discuss them in a little bit more detail. So for the Confederates, as we know, we've got everyone's favourite general and he, he gets a lot of stick, this guy, um, every time you read something. And, and it's understandable. Um, and he is obviously in the... Uh, um, control of the Army of the Mississippi. So tell us a bit more about um, Braxton Bragg. Braxton Bragg is, is a West Pointer. He's born in North Carolina, was joined originally from Louisiana. He married a Louisiana woman, um, very well-to-do plantation owner in Louisiana, um, had served as one of the senior subordinates at Shiloh in April of 1862 and had gotten command of the Army. This is actually his first command and his first major battle in command of this Army. And uh, this, he's, he's an aggressive officer. He's, he's an aggressive planner. But one of the things that, that becomes very clear fairly quickly is that Bragg um, can be very erratic. One of the things that, if we give you an example, one of the things that he's counting on is when he goes into Kentucky, he is expecting that he's brought 15,000 arms with him, rifles. He's expecting thousands upon thousands of Confederates to, or Kentuckians to join the Confederate Army. When they don't, which there's a lot of reasons, basically one of the big ones is, is because Buell's army is still in Louisville undefeated. There's still no guarantee the Confederates are going to stay. Um, when this doesn't happen, Bragg basically loses heart for the campaign. It begins to hate all things Kentucky and Kentuckians and will for the rest of the war. And then writes a letter to Jefferson Davis and says, basically, if the Confederates or if the Confederates don't get the recruits they were promised, quote, we must leave the garden spot of Kentucky to its cupidity, unquote. Now, keep in mind, where is Jefferson Davis, the Confederate president? Where was he born? Where did he go to college before he went to West Point? Mm -hmm. He's from Kentucky. So. You know, that what what does that you know when you start to think about that, you start to think about what Bragg is saying to the Confederate president about his home state. <laughs> what does that say about Bragg as a leader and his ability to manage people and, and not let his temper get the best of him? And by the end of the campaign, he will start the series of quarrels with his generals that will corrode this army all the for the entire time that he is in command of it, all the way through the fall of 1863. Yeah, and I was I was listening to uh, David Powell's um, one uh, uh, Battle Above the Clouds, his uh, Emergency War books today, actually, and it mentions a lot of that 
that infighting and even Longstreet comes over and says, this guy is blimmin' useless, you know? Um, and that, you know, he's just an absolute nightmare. And also I've heard a story of um, that um, uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest actually went in his tent one day and actually basically told him, I'll kill you or something along them lines. I can't remember what he said to him. It was you know, after the Battle of Chickamauga. Yeah, saying. I think so. Yeah, he basically <laughs> threatens him. And I mean, most people yeah. wouldn't get away with that. But because it's Nathan Bedford Forrest, he gets away with it. Well, when, when Bragg was in the Bragg was still in the U.S. Army after the Mexican War, uh, some of his soldiers actually tried to kill him. Really? And there's a story about how he was the uh, the acting post quartermaster while also being a, a battery commander in Florida. And he wrote a requisition as the battery commander to himself as the post quartermaster and Senate post quarter as the post quartermaster. He then denied his own request and started to get into correspondence with each other back and forth. And the post commander said, Captain Bragg, you have quarreled with everybody on this post. <laughs> and now you are quarreling with yourself. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so that, my God. What a character. Yeah. So uh, now I will say this, the man can drill. He's, he's got a good sense of discipline. Um, he's got an aggressive temperament. If you look at all of his campaigns, one of the things that I noticed, and perhaps this is something we, we can talk about later when we talk about another one of his campaigns, you know how great generals can think several moves ahead. Mm -hmm. Having studied the campaigns of Braxton Bragg, he cannot think more than one move ahead. And that is a serious limitation for him as an army commander. Because, and then you add his erratic nature, like we've already talked about, and you put that together and it becomes a very, I, any CEO that has that kind of combination is going, you're going to have problems and the organization mm -hmm. is going to have problems, regardless of whether you're an army commander, you run a comp, run a company, whatever the case is. And that's Braxton Bragg. Yeah. And I heard a saying, and I don't know whether it was true, but apparently a shell landed in his tent in the Mexican-American War, and it's a shame it never went off. That, that, And I don't know whether that's true or not, but I've heard that on a podcast somewhere. But there you go. Um, OK, let's uh, move on to uh, the Union. So, um, And also one more thing about Braxton Bragg, obviously you're saying about um, Jefferson Davis being a Kentuckian, but Lincoln was also a Kentuckian, I believe. That is correct. They were born... Lincoln and Jeff Davis were born about 100 miles apart, six months apart from each other. Yeah. And also, they claim, him and Jefferson Davis claim to be good friends. You know, he claims, doesn't he? You know, he always treats Bragg sort of like a little bit nicer. So the fact that he's, you know, slagging off his state, you know, that's not that's not a very good friend, is it? <laughs> right. Okay. No, that's a whole talk for a whole other time, Darren. Yeah. So for the union, we have Don Carlos Buell and the Army of the Ohio. So please tell us about um, this guy, please. Don Carlos Beal's a West Pointer. He's about five years younger than uh, Bragg. He's from Ohio, and he is a protege of George McClellan. In fact, he had gotten his first senior command in the Army of the Potomac, and then in early 1862, when uh, McClellan, who was commander of the entire Union Army at the time, needed to send a capable subordinate west he sent Buell to take command of the Army of the Ohio. Buell has been in command of the Army of the Ohio now for about eight months or so. Commanded them at Shiloh, commanded them in a bunch of campaigns. Uh, Buell is, he can fight the battle and fight campaigns very well on a map. He does not necessarily understand the human dimension of the war. For example, as an example of this, 
when he needs to lighten the baggage of his army so that it will move faster, the thing that he, he jettisons is the medical supplies. So what does that tell you about how he views and if what, what, what the lack of care he has for the wounded in his army? Um, Buell is, has actually, when he got to Louisville, had found orders relieving him of command unless he was about to embark on an active campaign against the enemy and replacing him with George Thomas. And Buell, Thomas, Thomas says, look, I can't take, I'm not going to take command. He's about to go, go against Bragg. I don't, I don't. So the orders are suspended. So through this, the rest of this campaign, Buell is going to have basically a sword, the sword of Damocles hanging over his head. Uh, because the orders have not been revoked, the chance that he might lose his job at any given moment. Um, so there's a lot of pressure on Don Carlos Buell um, when he's in Louisville in the last week of September, not just to evict, evict the Confederates out of Kentucky, but he's also about almost on thin ice with Washington. And on top of all this, congressional midterm elections are coming up in November. So politically, there's a lot of pressure to fight and win a victory. And so he can't, he can't dally. He can't, do you know he can't wait no um and to his credit he moves aggressively i think he comes up with good with a good campaign plan against bragg and he outmaneuvers bragg and is able to achieve his objective yeah and and yeah so he's he's uh again this is what i love about the civil war is these interesting characters i mean you couldn't write half this stuff you know that, that these guys have done and what they do and i mean so many that's what i think that's why people like it as well you know because there's so many characters um okay so um i was going to mention that um but um as as chris said he was going to be replaced by george thomas but that's okay so um okay so the first shots are fired in in the early morning of the 8th of october so take us through um what happens please mate so there's some initial skirmishing um the, the, most of the battle and the battle that, that you have on the map here is northwest of the city of Perryville, which was a town of about 800 people at the time, um, is northwest about two miles. Just south of here, um, just uh, where Doctor's Fork goes off the map to the south there, um, the first fighting occurred that day. And it was a very severe drought. And both sides, actually, the first thing they did was they fought for water. They fought for one of the best water supplies in the area. The Federals win. Confederates fall back. Bragg arrives. His two senior subordinates, Leonidas Polk and William Hardy, tell him basically the entire Union Army is here. Bragg doesn't believe it, and he orders an attack for that afternoon at two o'clock against the most visible and the most accessible part of the Union Army, which is the 13,000 men, the First Corps, under Alexander McDowell McCook. About half of his units are seeing combat for the first time. And basically what's going to happen is you can see where the lines start there on the right, where you see the dark red for the Confederates and the light blue for the Union. And basically the Confederates are going to attack in a stair step, what's called an echelon attack, where you start kind of building pressure from one end of the line to the other, the idea of breaking through somewhere. The objective of this whole battle is the Dixville Crossroads, which if you look here on the map, and you see the word Rousseau go straight up and a little bit to the left, right where you have the cursor is the Dixville Crossroads. That becomes the most expensive real estate in Kentucky 
on October 8th, 1862, because whoever controls that controls McCook's connection to the rest of the Union Army. And if the Confederates can capture the Dixville Crossroads, they will cut McCook off and destroy one third of the Union Army. Battle will last for five hours. It's touch and go for both sides for a lot of it. And we can get into some specific episodes if you like. But by the end, as darkness falls, the Confederates have pushed the Federals, as you can see with the dark blue lines, all the way back to the Dixville Crossroads itself and actually have put skirmishers on the, on the crossroads. But as darkness is falling, General Polk, who narrowly escapes capture, tells the last Confederates who are about to attack and who have, can sense the victory in their grasp, tells them, I want no more night fighting. And so after five hours of solid combat from two o'clock till seven o'clock, the battle ends with the Federals hanging on by their absolute fingernails. In those five hours, 7,500 men have fallen, killed, wounded, or missing, which is 1,500 men an hour. And is one of the worst per hour casualty rates of the entire Civil War. Yeah. Wow. And um, the um, artillery have, have quite a big part to play in one part of the battle, I understand. Extremely. Um, one of the things that uh, you'll, if for anybody who visits the battlefield, um, and you can sort of get a sense of it from maps like this, is that Perryville is a series of ridges and a couple of hills. And the Federals had set up a defense anchored around artillery batteries. And if you look right where the Confederates first make contact and you see Harris's brigade, Lytle's brigade, kind of in the center there of the map. And then further to the north, Terrell and Starkweather up where the brown and the blue come together. Um, right up in there, in each one of those hills, uh, the defense is infantry supported by artillery. And so particularly in the early part of the battle, fighting for possession of those guns, either the Confederates to neutralize them or the Federals to hold on to them is important. And the Confederates will push ridge to ridge toward the Dixville crossroads. Some of the key, some of the heaviest fighting is where you see Terrell and then Starkweather, where Terrell had eight guns on the hill where his name is, lost seven of them. Starkweather had 12 guns, lost six of them, ended up counterattacking and recapturing them all. Um, so artillery helps anchor the federal defense. There's absolutely no question about that. But I will say this. There is a soldier in the first Wisconsin who at the end of the day summed up the battle saying it wasn't generalship. It wasn't anything else. It was just the fighting staying qualities of the federal soldier mm-hmm. is what held the day for McCook and his men. And um, I'm going to bring this up because it's important, especially important to you. Um, so you have a ancestor that actually fought in the 21st Wisconsin in this actual battle. Um, so what was it like for you learning his experience in this in this battle? Because I take it you obviously did your the research into that. His name was Private R. Bailey Schoonover, and he's a he's not a direct descendant. He's a cousin of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, but he uh, I found him actually about six months after I had taken a job as the chief preservationist and historian at Perryville Battlefield State Park. And the 21st Wisconsin was one of those units that was seeing battle for the first time. They were so new. They've been recruited in April, August of 1862. They were so new that the battle flag that you see there on the left, which is in the possession of the Wisconsin Veterans Museum today, 
um, actually hadn't made it from Wisconsin yet. It hadn't been issued to the unit. They didn't receive the colors for a few weeks until after the battle. This is them on the right. They're depicted here on the right. Um, in between where Terrell's men are, that wooded uh, hill you see in the distance, and then the ridge of troops in the foreground are Starkweather's men. In between there is a cornfield, which you can kind of see on the lithograph here. And the 21st Wisconsin was put in the cornfield kind of as an ambush, but also as a reserve for Terrell. And it's a terrible position because they can't really see anything. They're on the reverse slope and the Confederates crash into them. And the unit loses, I think, 25% losses out of 725 men in about 30 minutes. Uh, my man survived. He was unscathed. He survived this. He survived Stones River and then ended up transferring to the Veterans Reserve Corps in the summer of 1863 and spent the rest of the war in Nashville. But this is the kind of fighting that you see. And actually, one of the great things about this image that you've got is you get a sense of the rolling terrain. It's wooded. It's rolling. It's kind of broken. Um, it's, it's good ground for the defense, but it's also good ground for the attackers because there's a lot of places to hide and a lot of places you can maneuver. Um, and it made for very, it's some of the most intricate ground on any Civil War battlefield that I've come across. Yeah. So when you, when you uh, uh, went over to uh, take that position at the Perryville battlefield, learning that must have been, you know, must have, must have given you goosebumps a little bit, you know? I mean, oh, uh, it was, it was incredible. I had no idea. Yeah. And when I got out there and I found that out, you're right. I got goosebumps. It was, it was fantastic. So what, what, what sort of resources did you tap into to find out what that unit was, um, was doing and what, what they was up to? The, uh, there's a really good regimental history that was written by the adjutant after the war um, that was, it was very helpful. The state rosters, at the, which are at the Wisconsin Veterans Museum, um, were very, very helpful in finding him and then finding uh, you know, a little bit about his service history. And then there's also a book that was written immediately after the war called Wisconsin and the War for the Union. That is short regimental histories of each of the Wisconsin units that served in the war. You may be familiar with the ones from New York or Pennsylvania mm -hmm. or Ohio. Many of these states did this, did the, that type of history. And so between those, I was able to, to pretty quickly figure out about the unit. And then the park files, actually, they've collected a lot of reports. They've collected a lot of of uh, copies of histories, diaries, letters from participants. And so being able to, to have that, I was able to put together um, their story and actually was able to, to get it published um, as an article and then obviously told the story again when I did my book. That's awesome. So how did you actually end up at the Perry, uh, Perryville battle, battlefield uh, as, as a you know, ranger there? I was there from uh, 2005 to 2008. I've been working for the Civil War Trust, which today is the American Battlefield Trust. And, uh, you know, I was kind of looking to make a move. And we happened to, the trust happened to have an educational conference out in Kentucky. And while I was out there at the battlefield, you know, got to talking to some people and they said, you know, uh, we, we, we'd like to have you come out. If you're interested, we'd like to have you come out. And, uh, you know, the rest, the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah, you know, all the cool. pieces fell into place. And, and I went out there and it, I, I'm so proud of what we did. And I uh, Perryville will always be a very, very special place for me. Mm -hmm. OK, so um, <laughs> the, the, the outcome of the battle. Um, so 
it's not really a victory for anyone, is it really? Or is it, it's more a union victory than a, would you say it's more of a union victory? It's kind of complicated in some ways. And this, I, I like, I like this lithograph. This is one of the other contemporary lithographs. This actually shows some of the fighting at the Dixville crossroads late in the day as the sun is, is setting to, it's looking east. So the sun would be setting behind you. Um, if you look at the battle in isolation, just October 8th itself, Confederates inflict more Union casualties. They drive the Union back. They get extremely close to achieving their objective of capturing the crossroads, but they don't quite do it. But nonetheless, the Confederates, as far as I'm concerned, if you think about it like a boxing match, they win on points. Mm-hmm. They didn't get a knockout, but they win on points. However, the next morning, Bragg begins to retreat. And Buell is able to continue his advance and, and able to continue to threaten Bragg's line of communication to Tennessee. And because of that, because the campaign ends in a Confederate retreat, ends with a Confederate leaving, the Confederates lose this battle from a strategic and operational standpoint. They win on the battlefield, but because Buell is still able to execute his campaign plan and achieve his overall big objective, Confederates, you know, they win. It's the old story. You win the battle, but you lose the war. Mm-hmm. This is one of those types of situations. And also, as you mentioned, by the sounds of it, Bragg, Bragg didn't like Kentucky anymore. So his heart probably wasn't in it, you know, if, if he's. He, that, that's you know, definitely part of it. And you if know. you read his correspondence in the two weeks after the battle, you see that appear again and again. Yeah. So what actually happens um, to the two commanders after the battle? Obviously, they go on their way. We obviously, we, um, myself and you will know, and other Civil War buffs will know, that obviously Bragg is with the army until um, for a little while afterwards, um, for about a year or so. But um, what happens to the two commanders after this battle? Well, Bragg, as you mentioned, the, the army, when it returns to Tennessee, he will be called to Richmond to explain, basically explain what happened and the kind of, and Jeff Davis will, will try and, and set some things right and try and, and basically buck up Bragg. So when he comes back to Tennessee, retakes command of the army, now known as the Army of Tennessee, and will fight at Stones River, Tullahoma, Chickamauga, and Chattanooga in command of that army uh, before being relieved and spends the rest of the war basically as advisor to Jefferson Davis. Buell, for his part, um, in Washington, comes under considerable criticism for not pursuing Bragg aggressively enough. The word escorted has been used, is that Buell escorted Bragg out of Kentucky and didn't really press as aggressively as some people in Washington thought he should have his advantages. So Buell, three weeks after the battle, two weeks after the battle, on October 24th, 1862, is relieved and is relieved by William Stark Rosecrans, who will be Bragg's opponent at Stones River, Tullahoma, and Chickamauga. Buell will be awaiting orders, and in 1864, will actually, William T. Sherman will ask him to return to the field and take a command in Sherman's campaign for Atlanta. But Buell, who has outranked Sherman, refuses to serve under somebody that is his junior. And so when Grant and Sherman hear that, they have no interest in Buell anymore. And so Buell actually ends up resigning his commission, retiring from the army later in 1864, 
and goes into business, ironically, in Western Kentucky, where he'll basically live out most of the rest of his days. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. So um, Chris has uh, written a book about this. As you know, he said he worked for the, the uh, Perryville uh, battlefield site there. So um, the book is called uh, The Civil War at Perryville, Battling the Bluegrass, for the Bluegrass, sorry. So tell us how this opportunity come up and, uh, you know, what sort of, yeah, just tell us the opportunity that came up. This was my first ever book, actually. So this is another reason Perryville has such a uh, fond place in my heart. Um, October of 2008, I had just handed in my notice. I was going to go run a museum for the Army in Georgia, in Atlanta. And I had been doing a lot of speeches on Perryville. And this publisher was starting this series and wanted to do lesser known campaigns of the Civil War. And they found out about me through that speakers bureau and called me and said, you know, if you ever wanted to write a book, would you be interested in doing this? And of course, I'm very politely saying, well, that's something I'd be interested in. And inside the, you know, the little child, the childhood mm. dream is always, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so, and we ended up working it out. I wrote it when I was in Atlanta and um, came out in the summer of 2009. And continues to sell very well today. Continues to be on sale at the park. Uh, really, really proud of, of the reception that it's gotten. Yeah, and I, I am going to buy it. I just I can't get hold of it in the UK. I can, but I can't. It's uh, it's really bloody expensive in the UK. I don't know why. Maybe it's because it's got to be shipped. Um, but when I get over to America, I'm going to buy it. Right, um, I have got your Tallahoma one, as you know. Um, but there you go. Yes. Um, so yeah, obviously you follow that up with a Tallahoma one. But the big question is, obviously I know you're busy. You you you've just got um, a well another World War Two coming out. I, I believe is that right? Spring of 2022, Nations in the yeah. Balance about the India Burma campaigns. Yes. So the big question is, when are you doing an emergency Civil War book? As I bet Chris has been phoning you up every day. Come on, mate, hurry up! He <laughs> must be bending your ear. <laughs> The, 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 the trick is to find the right topic. Now, I yeah. will say for, for some of the books, I've done appendices uh, for Dwight Hughes's excellent book on the Monitor in the Virginia. Mm -hmm. I did the forward for. So it's not like I haven't done anything for emerging civil war. Yeah. But I haven't just done a full on book yet for it. No, but we're all waiting, you know. I know you're busy, but <laughs> I'll, I'll see what I can do, Darren. I'll oh, see what thanks, I can do. Mate. I appreciate that. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to bring that up. That was funny. No, it's all right. That's the answer. Um, but yeah, so um, I know that was only a short video, guys. But um, you know, um, um, but yeah, I just want to say thanks, Chris, for 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 joining me again. And just before you go, obviously, you can give give the museum a little bit of a plug. You know, I mean, I know you don't need it now, but so how's it actually been going since? Because obviously, last time we spoke, you obviously with COVID and everything. But you're you're back to sort of like sort of normal now, are you, with the museum? We reopened to the public July 1st, and uh, we've been getting some good visitation, some great, uh, great responses. Uh, we're still doing our virtual programs, and we're still doing, uh, we're doing some in-person programs as well. A lot of our in-person programs, we're also doing hybrids, so you can attend virtually. Uh, for your UK audience, there's a six-hour time difference between Wisconsin and London. But uh, usually with the timings or the recordings, you, people can catch those. And we do get people who attend from the UK, as a matter of fact. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, you can find out more about what we're doing, some of the great resources that we have, uh, wizvetsmuseum.com, W-I-S-V-E-T-S museum.com. Or you can always just Google Wisconsin Veterans Museum. Um, we've got an online catalog. We've got recordings of our, of our programs. We've got a lot more on our website too that you can check out. And it, and it looks amazing. I, I watched, uh, somebody did a vlog or, uh, um, before COVID, I think, a tour of the museum on YouTube and it looks pretty impressive, I must admit. Um, we'll, have to get, we'll have to get you over to, I, to I'm definitely, um, I mean, the thing is you keep giving, because I keep talking to all you guys, I've now got to visit um, Perryville. I've now got to visit, you know, all these places. I've now got to go to Wisconsin. And the thing is, America's not a small country, is it? You can't <laughs> just like hop in the car and drive from, you know, here to there, can you? So, um, but yeah, eventually I will do. I've got a very understanding wife. So now, you know, I mean, I know COVID's still around and it's never going anywhere, but things are easing up and, you know, I will start traveling hopefully soon. But yeah, um, Chris, thank you very much for joining me. Um, I hope everyone enjoyed the video. Always good to talk to you. Thanks again, mate. Cheers.